Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. If you're not familiar with Venture Fizz, well, we are the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. So if you're looking to find a new job or just stay connected to the tech ecosystem in either New York City or Boston, then we are your localized resource. For the 35th episode and second in New York of our podcast, I interviewed Alex Duzay, who is co-founder and CEO of Ollie, a company that is disrupting the pet food industry with a next-generation pet wellness brand. Prior to Ollie, Alex was co-founder and CEO for The Ladders, which brought an innovative business model to the online job search market, and during his time there, its member base grew to over 10 million users. Not only is Alex a serial entrepreneur, but he is also a six-time Ironman triathlon finisher. In this episode, we cover lots of topics like how training and competing in an Ironman is compared to founding and running a startup, lessons learned from raising venture capital and building the ladders, the aha moment that led him down the path of starting a company in an unfamiliar industry, Ollie's business model and their progress to date, his hiring secrets, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. If you're looking to stay connected to the tech ecosystem in New York City, then there is one email that you need to subscribe to. It's the VentureFizz Weekly Tech Buzz email. It's your digest of everything you need to know in terms of stories, jobs, deals, and more. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash email to sign up. All right, well, further ado, here's my interview with Alex. Alex, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, so... Uh, when I was looking at your background, I obviously noticed that you've competed in the Ironman competition, which is amazing in itself. So uh, obviously you had to qualify to compete on the legit Ironman competition in Hawaii. So uh, the training must have been incredibly rigorous. So I thought it'd be fun to ask you, like, how do you compare the training and the actual competition of an Ironman to founding and running a startup? Yeah, I mean, I think just to give a bit of background for people who don't really know what the Ironman is and, and what the training can tell, but an Ironman is essentially the triathlon, but very long distance. So you have to swim 2.4 miles, you have to bike 112 miles, and you have to run 26.2 miles all in one day. It's consecutive. So it's not like you do one piece one day and next week the next day. Yeah, insane. I haven't had that question before. Like, oh, do you do this over three days? <laughs> you gotta break that up, obviously. <laughs> you yeah. do that. I was like, no, that's actually all in one piece. Um, and on a volcano. And then the volcano under hot, windy, humid conditions. So it's a, it's a big test of endurance, you know, stamina, and, and focus and discipline. So yeah. the training, I think just to get to white, it's a year of training, but leading into a race like a white is at least six months where for me, I was investing close to 20 hours a week to get my body to a place where I was physically fit. So I did use my year between the ladders, my private company and Ollie, my current company, to focus on that as a bit of a personal goal for me. Um, it's a lot of structure, regimen, discipline around swimming, biking, running, to go into a different phase, uh, as well as like strength techniques, you know, a little bit of stretching too. Yoga is not a bad thing to do as well if you want to maintain your body in shape. But the thing that I took away from that that helped me a lot with building a company is that the similarity between a company and doing an Ironman is both high intensity, both very challenging, lots of mental discipline, you know, can be a lot of ups and downs, uh, and you have to be stay focused. You have to have this kind of end goal and say, I'm going for the end goal, 
But knowing the end goal is not necessarily in three to six months, it's probably in seven to ten years when you do And so it's having that foresight of saying, I have, I have a sense of purpose, I have a sense of mission, I know where I'm going, but let's not just go too crazy by keeping myself with the end goal. I have to be sure I meet all the milestones between now and then. So when you come building a company, it feels like it's me, my two co-founders, all right, what's the product? When do we launch? You know, what's our go-to-market strategy? How do we get one customer? How do we get 100 customers? How do we get 1,000 customers? So thinking of those as milestones, when I race the same, like when I'm swimming and it's big in the race, you essentially have a buoy every mark, every 100 yards uh, on the swim course. I don't think of the swim exit, I think about the next buoy. Mm-hmm. How do I go from where I am to this one? Right. And it's the same thing as when you're working at something like Ali or, or somewhere else and you're building a startup. Is I think about the next milestone. Like, how do I go and get these next investors to join us? How do I hire this great executive to join the team? How do I launch this new product? How do I acquire this new group of customers? That's that's the, the analogy between what you get when you're trying to succeed in finish an Ironman and when you're trying to build a successful company. And I would imagine also playing with the same analogy that you have to run fast and hard to compete, yet pace yourself so that obviously you don't burn out and not complete the race. Yeah, I think that's that's like the key. And, and there is no rules that I can give you right now to like say this is its perfect rules for you to do well. You have to experiment for yourself. You have to learn to know yourself, learn to know your body, and then figure out where is that limit that I don't want to cross. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when I went to Hawaii and did the race in Kona, I saw so many great athletes, very talented athletes, professional and amateurs, went above that line. Their goal was to get on the podium, but they felt like they need to race as hard as they could from meeting the guns went up, and they went too hard. They ended up like giving up on the race or they ended up like walking the rest of the race. And I think that's a mistake that young entrepreneurs or first-time entrepreneurs can do as well. They think that, oh my God, I gotta go so fast. And you do have to go very fast in the early days of your business, otherwise you won't take off and <laughs> you don't succeed. But it's finding that balance between going very fast, working really hard, and growing the midnight oil every single night, working seven days a week for two or three years, eventually you're going to blow up. You have to learn how to pace yourself. You have to go to very high, high pace, higher than the competition, but a pace that you can sustain so that you're like, I can stay in this pace for the next five to 10 years of my life. That makes sense. Well, let's go back. So where did you grow up? What did your parents do for work? I'm always fascinated by that question. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, you can probably tell from my Brooklyn accent <laughs> that I wasn't born in this country. Um, I, uh, I was born and raised uh, in France. Uh, I moved to New York when I was 22, so I went to college in, in France. Okay. And initially, I came here simply because when I was in college, I wanted to get some exposure to the world and just get more of a global experience. So I came here every summer, I came to the US every summer and started like working small jobs. Um, my first job was in Raleigh, North Carolina. I worked at the McDonald's as a cook. Oh, wow. For over three months. Okay. Um, and I was like from there to later on coming to New York, doing the internship in finance in New York, to my first job post-college was working at Air France. Uh, in their marketing team in New York doing analysis. I was a, was a marketing analyst. 
but you know, growing up in France, uh, you know, my, my father was, uh, you know, both my parents came from a family where, you know, they, they were born through the wall. Uh, on my mother's side, they were a big family. My mother was like 11, sister and brothers. Wow. And my parents were farmers. Uh, and as a result, my mother has to stop schooling at the age of 10. Mm-hmm. My father was the complete opposite. Raised from a single mother, because my grandfather was deported during the war and died, and then came back. Um, so he never actually get to know his father. So he was a single child, raised by a single mother, uh, and you know, pretty poor family. So he was sent to work something at the age of ten. So I think both my parents got these very strong culture of like work ethic, work, yeah, like from day one. Yeah. That like listen, you just got to be focused. And also, you know, my father, because he had the chance to go to school, made a point to self-teach himself. So he was very, very strong at learning new skills, uh, a great student of like learning and reading, and just acquiring the knowledge he needed to go. Um, I was fortunate to go to school <laughs> and, and, and graduate high school and going to college and, and went later to business school. Um, but I think I was to that promise, like, Regardless of what is my social economic background and where I'm coming from, whatever skills I want to learn are there for me to learn. There's a library of knowledge on there. I can just go and inquire it by reading books, by listening to people, self teaching, trying, trying errors, always being. So, for instance, like for me in Ironman, I was never passionate about triathlon. I got into triathlon when I was 30, 33, 34 years old. And I self taught and self trained. I never hired a coach. But I read a lot of books, I studied, I tried to teach things, I see what worked, what didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this works the same, like Ollie and, and the ladders are two completely different industries. The ladders was in a job online recruiting space, which I knew a little bit because I worked at hot jobs before starting the ladders. Then Ollie, we in a fresh food, human grade, like a direct consumer dog food. I had never manufactured dog food before I came up with the idea. So, but always being these ethics that I got from my parents of like self-teaching, self-running, and a very strong discipline and strong work ethic. Now, you talked about some of your early jobs out of college. One that uh, caught my attention because I was a pretty active customer was BMG in Columbia House, right? So, I mean, for the time, they had pretty... Uh, amazing customer acquisition strategy, like you know, one cent for ten CDs, yeah. whatever. I forget what it was, but I was a sucker for that every single time. And then I would, you know, obviously keep the membership going. But uh, I had many, many CDs from BMG. So was that where you really learned kind of customer acquisition, more the consumer marketing? Yes, I mean the, the background of that is so when I came to New York, I worked for nine months for Air France, and then uh, I went to work for Star. So I went to work for a TV company. I was employee number three. Uh, outside the family, like there was a woman, a sister, and a cousin, were like the fathers, mm-hmm. and I was like the only male in the company that was the only non family member of the company. So it was okay. a, it was a unique situation. And essentially, it was a, it was a mail order catalog selling, um, you know, household items, like tabletop, china, stuff like this, straight to consumer. But nobody had the skills, they didn't really knew how to do circulation, how to acquire customers. Mm-hmm. And I took it on myself to learn it and I figured it out. So I, I also talked to people in the industry, I read some books, and I was in charge of all the circulation for that catalog. But I figured like I need to take my skills to the next level. Mm-hmm. 
And by doing some research, I discovered that NYU had a master program in marketing, direct marketing and science, or mass statistics, but all the techniques around direct marketing to to acquire customers. And so I applied to that school and went to school at nighttime. So while I was working there, I had my degree at NYU over 18 months in direct marketing and managed to graduate from my class. So while I was there, a classmate of mine was working at BNG and told me that they were recruiting people. And as I was thinking about it, I noticed that this is a perfect thing for me because I wanted to raise the bar for my skill set. And I was fascinated by the BMG model, what you described, the fact that like, how can you make money selling a CD for a penny? How does that work? There's got to be a trick. I was very intrigued by this. And also knowing that it's a fairly large established company. So I applied, I got in, and I joined the uh, marketing acquisition team. Joined as a senior analyst, and then over time was to kind of run the overall acquisition. What was fantastic there is that I got to see every potential channel on how to acquire customers from direct mail to telemarketing to inserts to print ads, TV ads, and then we were starting to do email marketing. We were just in the early days of like digitals. But we were spending $100 million a year acquiring 10,000 members and getting to spend $100 a year on CDs to generate a billion dollars in revenue. So it was a fascinating, for me, education on learning. And a fun industry. I mean, it was music. It was cool to be part of like BNG family. You know, um, there's three record labels on the floor below us. Sometimes we go to conference rooms and I, they'd be like, crazy music playing and Puff Daddy and his level was in the building and <laughs> sometimes we go out to lunch and you know, like all this rapper and yeah. big music like That's big cool. celebrity like big personality outside so that was that was kind of fun um, as an added value but the teaching I got was phenomenal yeah uh, in two, 1999 this is when the, the web started really like new at least the phase 1.0 of the web was Amazon Yahoo and of course, here in New York, there was a decent ecosystem of internet startups doing well, something well, some doing poorly, mm-hmm. and then going up. But I wanted to learn uh, digital because I saw that that was the next extension of what I was doing. Right. Fortunately, I felt and realized very quickly that inside a big structure like PMG, we were not going to be able to do this. Like it was too disruptive. Mm-hmm. I remember being in meetings and we were having a debate with the head of marketing on should we put the URL the website on the direct mail package. I'm like, what do we care? It's our own customers. Right. Like, what do we care? They go through the web to order or they go through the mail on the phone. But when I saw that mentality that taught me mm-hmm. these people will never embrace digital or they're going to be too slow to the game and they're not going to teach me well, I got to go somewhere else to learn the skills. Yeah. So I was recruited to join a company called Hot Jobs right. uh, back in early 2000. Hot Jobs had just gone public. It was not the largest job board. Uh, he had Monster, US, career builder. Monster, career builder, had until that net were bigger. Mm-hmm. We were kind of number four, number five. They had no idea what they were doing from a customer acquisition standpoint or how to acquire resumes. Um, and so I got there. What was great was that they had a decent budget. Every deals they were doing were a disaster. <laughs> they were bleeding money left and right because they had signed all these partnerships that were just not yielding any results. And so I came in and I just cleaned the slate and just reorganized everything. Mm-hmm. And then what's interesting is 
in 2000, I was trying to figure out something that was going to work well for us. Because uh, I just felt like we were paying too much to acquire a job seeker to come and profile themselves on a hot job and apply to jobs. And I called this teeny company in the West Coast uh, called Google. Hmm. And at the time, <laughs> at the time, this is interesting, at the time, Google was not even in the top 200 most visited company in the US, according to the metrics. Right. And I called them and I said, do you have a product that we could advertise? And the guys people the phone said, no, but you could be, could be back in three months, we'll have a product. Wow. So this is pre-AdSense. So this is pre-AdSense, and three months later, we launched a product. And at the time, it was simply a, a pink and a blue banner of the search results. And you could uh, pay for that. It's, it was not nearly as sophisticated as what Google search algorithm is today, but that's what it is. So I was one of the first sponsors of those AdWords. I was the largest founder on the job, every keyword job related. And that became all number one performing channel. Right. To the point where at the end of 2001, I was Google number one customers. Wow. I was spending, it was the first company to spend a million dollars a year on the advertising platform. So I actually, from time to time, we interact with the two founders, like Larry and Sergey, because we were a big customer, so they would actually talk to us. Um, and then, you know, Google, I'm sorry, Hot Jobs did well, was acquired by Yahoo in late 2001. And on that time, I made a decision that I wanted to go get my MBA. I wanted to go to business school. So I applied to, uh, to business school, I got in in school in Europe or in Seattle as a one-year program. So I left right around the time the acquisition took place. Okay. So I went to uh, I went to in Seattle and after a year came back and was trying to figure what to do. And so while I was still at hot jobs and left, the head of sales for old Google was this person named Tim Armstrong. And Tim <laughs> today runs uh, I believe he runs at all digital for Verizon. But right. he became the president of, of yeah. sales for, for Google yeah. for a while. And he was like, look, you're going to Seattle, you should come back and go work for us after Seattle. Even if you want to Seattle, you an internship, you should come work for us. And in my mind, I was like, why the heck do you go work for a job search engine? Like, I'm not an engineer and I'm not a salesperson. Like, they don't really have a job for me there. Right. But I kept my mind open. So I, when I came back from Seattle, I reached out to him and interview and they offer me a job. But eventually turned down the offer and this pre-IPO was Google was public. Wow. This in two thousand three. And the reason why I did that is because with two colleagues of mine from Hot Jobs, we came up with the ID for the ladders. Okay. And I decided to not go to Google to do the ladders. And all inside behind the ladders came out of an experience with a hot job. Watching what was happening with the ecosystem, and we had noticed that all the senior jobs, anything that was like a director, VP, or C level, mm-hmm. were being bombarded by applications. Yeah. And most of them were coming from low level applicants. And so we felt that to make it work, we need to create a creation model. Because it's not like there was no people qualifying on a job applying to those kind of job, but when the recruiters were like, wow, I just got 500 applications. I don't have time to see two five application to find the three that are qualified. Right. If I have twenty applications, I have the time to review twenty resumes. So we knew that we tried to figure out a model that would curate the experience, and essentially we came up with this idea: is like if we ask the qualified candidate to pay a 
minimal fee, you will disqualify and discourage all the level of applicants to come and apply to those jobs. Mm-hmm. But the sales applicant that you need to pay $10, $15, $20 a month to apply to return jobs. And if you let the companies post their job for free, we can aggregate a very large source of jobs and create an ecosystem that actually works for both sides. And so that was the inside the haha moment of the overall experience and how we create the model as candidate pays employers free for the ladders, focusing just on the high end jobs, so the jobs that pay a hundred thousand plus a year. Which, you know, this was very untraditional for the job board industry. Like you were flipping it on its head. Oh, yeah. So how did you test it out to make sure that the market was going to, and it was, you know, a nominal like $10, $15 to subscribe monthly, right? Yeah, yeah. But how did you test it out to know that the appetite for candidates would actually pay so, that? So a couple of ways. So first of all, everybody thought we were absolutely crazy. I bet, yeah. Anybody that knew us job space like you guys are gonna pay you guys are nuts yeah. all the jobs are free every job hold is free like, and it was like sixfigurejobs.com at the time yeah too, sixfigurejobs.com right? there was just everything was like no nobody's paying it's not gonna work what I did is because I'd see people willing to pay for content I, I you could see that sites like match.com and they were oh, ancestry.com so people were willing to pay for that for that content mm-hmm. And I knew these jobs were in high demand, and essentially, like, look, if for the promise of landing a six-figure job, paying ten bucks, it's like it's like if I've been shown the process for you. So that was the hypothesis that needed to be verified. Mm-hmm. I knew that I couldn't just launch the site and just have a paywall, and people were like, "What? Something behind this is like a scam." No, I didn't want So what we did is for six months we built a product for free for both sides. Okay. Can you pay? Uh, can you apply? Companies compose for free just to build enough of inventory on both sides to make the ecosystem work. And then gradually we segmented the offer where like some jobs are free, but some jobs are have to, have to pay. Mm. And see how that works. Will people click and pay, or once they see a payroll, will they just completely bear? Okay. And we noticed that a good percentage were willing to pay and go through. So from that, we refined the process. So this is very much of like this trial and error concept that I talked about before that I've used many times. We build an hypothesis. It's actually maybe for my training as a mathematician in statistics. I build a hypothesis and then I try to verify and I did my hypothesis through trials and error and then measurement and create a kind of virtual cycle of like test, measure, analyze, retest, evolve. Um, so it's actually what we did and over time we figured out that this model works and it's a to create business, it worked for both sides. People are very uh, happy about it. And we were able to raise money. So in 2004, we raised um, seven, eight million from a venture firm in Boston called um, Matrix. Matrix. And what was interesting is back in 2004, when we created the ladders, the, the New York tech ecosystem was not what it is today. Yeah. Essentially, there wasn't a single venture firm you could raise money from to a C1 or a Series A in New York City. Lecker Capo did not exist. Yep. You know, the guys at primary investors in the ladders did not exist. Yep. Um, even Fred Boston in, in US Venture News, one of the most known venture funds in New York City, was not created yet in 2004. Yeah. So we had no choice to raise money. We only had two options. You could go to Boston or you could go to Silicon Valley. Yep. And we did both and we, we got money from Matrix. Now, how did you end up building a double-sided marketplace? Because you did need the jobs and you need the candidates. 
and like which comes first, right? And then you build a brand where the ladder's big, yeah, it's so scaling to. It's challenging because you're right, you need both. And so you've got to create enough momentum to trigger what I call the virtual cycle of, of creating an upward spiral. Eventually, there's a moment, a magic moment, where you, you need a critical point in the ecosystem where the next level of job seeker comes, that creates the next level of jobs to come, and suddenly everybody wants to participate in the ecosystem. But we just felt that just tapping every vertical at one was going to be too challenging to create that momentum. So we segmented the offer around functions. We started with sales, then went to marketing, then finance, then operations, then eventually technology and legal. And then over time, just made no distinction on those. We broke the walls, but you know, the beginning there were walls between it. So we had sub vertical that we would call like sales ladders, marketing ladders, finance ladders, tech ladders, to build the momentum and monitor each ecosystem on their own to see do we have the right balance of candidate and jobs, candidate jobs, and is this taking off or is it struggling a little bit? Um, so that's kind of how we did it. And then eventually when we had, we felt we had critical mass across the world, we felt the multiple segmentation from the branding and an experience component was confusing. So we broke the walls and say it's just called the ladders, and, and it's just one ecosystem for everybody, not just some protocols, because that was going to just make it too hard to, to manage at the time to play with experience. Especially at the scale, because eventually scale. you scaled to 10 million members. Mm-hmm. Might, yeah. yeah, 10 million candidates. I can't remember how many employers were using the side of hundreds of thousands. Yeah, so this um, is yeah. at scale. Yeah, at scale. So. And we grew the company from zero in 2000, 2004 to almost $100 million by the end of 2009, 2010. Wow. And then uh, that's you know when you decide to take some time, train for the Ironman. Yeah. And what was the aha moment for your current company, Ollie? Yeah, so Ollie actually was what I was training for. So I took time off after I left the ladders. And I didn't know what I was going to do next, to be honest. But I knew I needed to recharge and take some time, some personal time. And I felt like it was a great opportunity for me to to go and, and have a new goal. And that was going to be the Ironman and, and quite qualify to do the corner. So I used my time to really like train 20 hours each a week. But that doesn't fill the entire week either. So to occupy my mind, I was you know, talking to our people, meeting with old friends, connecting with VCs. I just, I think, I was mentoring at three incubators, trying to evaluate. I just want to refresh my mind, think big, like, what's happening in the, the New York tech ecosystem? What are some of the interesting trends out there? And I was just looking for inspiration. And then while I was doing this, you know, my wife and I are both like animal lovers. We, um, you know, we always knew that we were going to have a dog. And when our daughters were going to be at proper age, we felt like it was time to get a dog. So a couple of years before I actually came up with the idea of my wife and I uh, rescued a dog. We got it from the shelter because we were big believers that you should rescue dogs from shelters, not like buying a dog that I put up in the end or whatever. Sure. So we rescued this dog, Belle. She was, uh, she was two years old. And 
at the time when I was pure, I was at the typical parent. I believe that the health benefit of food inside the bags was just as good as what the package was clean. Mm-hmm. And so I bought a, a brand that was called Nature Balance that was positioned as a natural, organic, you know, uh, pet food product. And I mixed that with a wet food. And I was feeling, following the feeding guidelines provided. And within a few months of doing that, my dog ate 18 pounds. She was 44 pounds when I got her. She jumped to 62 pounds. Wow. And she started to, of course, start to deteriorate. Like you could see that she was shedding a lot. Yeah, I could like, just touch her and she's like, okay, all over the place. Yep. And every morning she would wake up and have like, so, good morning sickness. She had the acid reflux and what was a vomit. Okay. Every morning. I just felt that was real. And that went on for a while. And so that's what kind of triggered me to study your diet and do some research to figure out what was going on. And it didn't take me long to do the research to find out, oh my God, this pet industry has some serious issue. I mean, the facts and evidence were just overwhelming. The fact that most of the ingredients are from extremely poor quality. Quality is a big question mark in pet food because there's no disclosure and transparency about where brands are sourcing their product. A lot of brands source from, uh, you know, rendering plants. So you get like dead, disease, dying, disease, more and more, or kills. Plus, all the products before Ollie were being sold in stores. And to achieve a long shelf stability, you have to cook the food at a very high temperature. When you do that, Kill all the nutrients inside the ingredients if you use good ingredients. Mm-hmm. And you release, at high temperature cooking, you release a chemical called acrylamide. When you release acrylamide, essentially it's a, it's a source of cancer. If you're exposed to it too much, you will eventually get cancer. The challenge with dogs and cats is that they eat the same thing over and over and over and over. Same meal, morning, night, seven right. days a week. Three, four, six, five days a year. So after a year or two or three or four years of being exposed to acrylamide, their immune system starts to get impacted and they eventually get cancer. That's why there's so many dogs who die of cancers. Most dogs live nine to ten years when they are technically built to live 15 to 20 years. Mm-hmm. All of it is related to nutrition. There's no other way to say it, but when I look at the data, like dogs and cats are being abused from a nutrition standpoint because they're not being fed a biologically appropriate diet. Mm-hmm. And so that inspired me to, to do more research. I went to see a vet nutritionist, talked to my dog today, and the person said, Oh, you look much better on a fresh diet. I can create one for you if you want. You can buy from us or you can make it yourself. And I looked at this and I'm like, Wow, I see that in the New York tech ecosystem, there's a ton of companies that are doing well for this rich consumer. Casper, Parker, you know, Warby Parker, Blue Apron, everything. But then in dog for the thirty billion dollar industry, you couldn't find a single brand going straight to consumer with some scales. There is some mom and pop, but like nothing with that scale. Like let's call it at least ten million in revenue. Mm-hmm. So that really like triggered a haha moment in my mind. I said, why nobody's done this? And would this be an opportunity? But because I didn't have a background in food manufacturing, I knew e-commerce, I'd known, you know, like the stuff at BMG, which is direct to consumer. Mm-hmm. I knew marketing and customer acquisition for my experience with the ladders and new technology. But I never built anything physical products, especially not food and not knowing how to formulate 
from a nutrition standpoint for dogs. That was the thing that kind of made me pause and say, hey, I, I really need to do my homework here because I can't, I, if I were to do this, I can't screw this up. Right? So I took six months to really research it and I used my time while I was training for Ironman to fill up the rest of the 20 hours a week to really like figure this out, like how do I do this, what this industry looks like. And within you know, four to five months, came up with the conclusion that yes, there is a big opportunity by doing a fresh diet with respect to consumer and it can be done. So I teamed up with my two co-founders, Gabby and Randy, to create Ali and decided that unlike the ladders, when I create the ladders, my partners and I were like, oh, let's go raise money from friends and family. And, and we were very obsessed on, you know, maintaining control. But raising friends and family money takes a long time. It's just as hard as raising this money. And I felt from my experience that if this is a good idea, I'm not going to be the only one in the market. Other people will do it. And I need to optimize for speed, not necessarily for control. So I had a chance from my experience and connections in New York to um, know the guys at Primary Venture mm-hmm. and I knew the partner of Benson there. And we talked while I was doing my research and he liked the idea very much and he was a big believer. So we felt that it was a small idea to work together on this and for me and Gabby to incubate all the inside of Primary Venture. So that's how we went at it. He gave us you know, the path to go to market that was, I think, much better. And because within three months of working on it, we, we identified three, four competitors right away. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So I was like, okay, I was right knowing that if it's a good idea, other people would be doing it. Yeah. And so having the support of, uh, of a partner like Primary was great. They want to help us attract more capital. We raised a C-Ron within six months of launching Ollie. But we spent the first year in stealth mode building the product and building infrastructure, figuring out the manufacturing, figuring out the formulation, working with the right formulators, sourcing the ingredient, doing a lot of R&D, working the packaging, working on the core supply chain, network distribution strategy, testing several approach, making sure that whatever we do can scale to 50, 100 million. Because like once we launch, when we take on customers, I don't want to be like building an airplane while I'm flying in. Mm-hmm. So I right. want to... I want to run an airplane that's relatively like stable and solid, where we felt our competitors were too worried about trying to go get revenue right away from 20 customers or 100 customers, but you not spending enough time figuring out the ins and outs of like manufacturing logistics. I just knew that that was the thing that could trip us, mm-hmm. and I needed to nail that because I felt that the demand, unlocking the demand and the marketing. Maybe this is what my background, I've done this three times over, was going to be relatively easy. Right. And, and our approach with design was, it's got to be a service, it's got to be subscription only, because dogs have to eat every day. It's not like you can just like sell them food once in a while and switching diets, it's not very convenient. So we took the model out of gates that it's got to be subscription-based service. So if I take you as a customer today, I have to be able to fulfill that product for you every two weeks. Your dogs cannot be without products and I cannot be delayed by a day. That's just not how it works. So for me, manufacturing logistics was critical. We had to nail that. That's why we took a year and we ended up like launching in October of 2016. And we were actually the last one to go to market. Our three competitors are only launched by the time we launched. Wow. 
Yeah, I mean, the complexity of the product, I mean, granted, the ladders is complex and there was a lot to build that business to the scale that you did. But the upfront of building out this product of a diet with ingredients, packaging, manufacturing, sourcing, like that, I mean, this must have been incredibly involved. Yeah, and it's got to be safe. It's got to be very palatable. Probably has to be extremely palatable. It has to be nutritionally sound. So there are guidance provided by a group called AFCO that tells you how to achieve a balanced diet. Mm-hmm. And they have 36 dimensions of vitamins, amino acids, or the nutrients enzyme where you have to be above and below the maximum and be above the minimum. So it takes time to really have a diet that works well. And it took us, for every recipe that we created, like 8 to 10 trials in R&D to really figure out this is the exact recipe that she will want to do. God. Now, you did talk about raising venture capital and that that was the goal of let's use this capital to scale and grow a business. How was it raising capital this time around versus the last time with the ladders? Uh, yeah, I think very different for two reasons. One, the ecosystem and the amount of capital available is completely different in 2018 than it was in 2004. Mm-hmm. So many more firms, much more access to capital. Just the fact I was talking here in New York, there are so many firms in New York where back in 2004 there was a single firm to do C and Series A. So that's just black and white <laughs> picture of all from there. Second, the ladders, when I was there, was a very well known company. I think at one point in 2008, the ladders and guilt were among the two most successful consumer facing venture. In New York, and the ones were potential like the next unicorn in the, in the New York Silicon Alley kind of ecosystems. So from that, the benefit I got being you know one of the co-founder, I, I ran marketing for many years, and then last few years I was the CEO there. Having a track record to scale a company from zero to one hundred million, and you know it was profitable at the end. Mm-hmm. That gave a lot more kind of confidence to or to the Investors, when I came up with the idea for Ollie, to say, here is why it work. Because um, I just didn't say that I've been there and done that, even though it was a bit different industry. My approach to the concept, the go to market strategy, scaling, telling the story around the opportunity was just easier because I'd been there and I knew how to do it. And there was more people to talk to. So I would say that in general, and also like the support that we got from our partner and primary was really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. We just added a like, strong signal for the world that just gave a lot of people a lot of confidence and this is exciting. You guys have a great team, you have a great vision, you still have a great product, and yeah, we want to be part of this. Um, so we were able to raise a seed round before we actually launched the product. And then nine months after launching, we were able to raise a series A last summer. And where's the business today and what are you looking at as far as the future? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't share any like financial management today because they are you know, private information, but what I can say is we've grown tremendously. Um, there's actually a story that we shared back in, uh, in April, May, where we talked about like the fact that year over year we've grown 500% from a revenue standpoint, from a number of users. We have customers in every state in the US. And I think what's surprising is when you look at the customer distribution, 
we talk, we take the top five states where we have the most customers, like New York, California, uh, Florida, Texas, and then Illinois. That's half of our customer base, mm-hmm. meaning the other half is somewhere in the US. So it's not just urban customers living in big cities who are customers of Ali. We actually don't even like skew toward any particular demographic. It's essentially people with a pet, age 25 and above, uh, who live in the US. And there's all kinds of them. There's from single people to families to empty nesters. Um, and so that's, you know, that's the people we're going after. One data I can share with you is that we've shipped already like five million meals wow. uh, in the last in the last year. So this sort of speaks to the volume of number of customers that we have. Well, it's totally playing into the you know organic food movement, right? Like people are becoming more aware of what's going into their bodies. Why wouldn't you want to do the same for your pets that are also a member of the family? Yeah, then there's sort of three great trends of we benefit from is the one you described is the fact is the similarity between the human food world and the pet food world. Human food was dominated by processed food and then when fresh offering like whole food came along, people realized, yeah, okay, maybe, maybe I do have to spend a little bit more, but when I taste it and try it, I can feel the difference, I can feel great I feel. And so that health benefit and wellness consciousness has translated to the pet people want the same for their dog because it it's an extension of the family. They love them just as much as they love their own children. In some in the case, some of our customers don't have children. Their dog is, is everything to them. Second, all food across all the diet you try, dry food, wet food, fish dry, raw, is going to be the most palatable product. We've done studies, patchy studies where we do like kind of a blind, like AB test, the world dry food of Ali, which one the dog eats. There's videos on YouTube you can see of people or customers doing that. Mm-hmm. It's just a black and white. Like we win 10 to 1 across every single diet. So it's extremely value, very valuable diet. Why? Because it's fresh. We use high quality meats. Most of them are USDA grade level product. We also use some level of organ meat like liver, kidney, which are very rich in nutrients, and the dogs most recognize that. Mm-hmm. 70% of our recipes has meat, the rest is vegetables, so it's very high concentration of meat. That's what makes the product very, very palatable uh, from uh, the dog's standpoint. Second, because we don't have a single preservative, there's no synthetic, there's no fillers in our product, and we follow much more the ancestral diet for dogs, our product is more biologically appropriate to the dog. And we have a way to do weight management with our app where we profile your dog and tell us what all the attributes and we recommend the exact amount of food, the exact calorie quantity per day. We have this ability to make your dog healthier very quickly. So usually our customers within two months or three months being on Ali will come back to us and say, wow, my dog's weight is great. My dog, first of all, the first time I put the box and fed him the food, he went nuts, like he licked the bowl clean. I can see their coat being better, I can see them being more agile and like more active. So for those reasons, people get super excited and they're like, wow, they're like, why would I even do anything else? And then they start telling their friends about the benefit of all these. So we, we benefit from all those uh, you know, movements as well. What are some of your, uh, I don't know if it's lessons learned, but like what, what advice would you give to you know first-time founders on you know building a business? Like some of the mistakes that you made that you've learned from that you wouldn't 
Yeah. I never want to repeat again. Yeah. I, I think first is don't do it yourself. Have partners because you know my action was still this from uh, yeah, my co-founder that I love is she she always uh, you she's like building a company, being a startup is the opposite of uh, bike riding. The uphill are fun, the downhill not so much. <laughs> uh, because you know when you build a company, what you know it is a lot of up and down. Yeah. Um, and she's absolutely right. The ups are phenomenal. It's a huge adrenaline boost. You're super excited, but then the downs are not so much. I think when you're going through a challenge, a crisis, and I don't care what startup you are, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when you're going to go through a crisis. This is when you want to be surrounded with strong partners that have the same value as you do. Um, they have the same uh, mission driven, the same sort of work ethic uh, as you do, because you can sort of pull each other and support each other through those moments. The second one is hiring is everything. It's like an idea to me isn't worth much. An idea without execution is is absolutely useless. It's going to go back. People always get caught oh, this idea was my idea, like it's worth XYZ, but no. The execution and team behind it that can execute this is worth a lot. So hiring is very, very true. Most first entrepreneurs have no idea how to recruit properly. Mm-hmm. That was my benefit, and I think you could appreciate that because you're working in search for a prototype. I spent two years at hot jobs, I spent 13, no, 12 years, 13 years at the ladder, so total like 14, 15 years in the recruitment. I was able to learn recruitment and hiring properly. I made from my mistakes, but I've learned from my mistakes. Mm-hmm. But I think that's an edge as well on how to scale my second venture, just being much more thoughtful about hiring and proactive about recruiting. To me, first of all, the first thing you have to do is it's not just for the person and the skill sets, that's important, but you have to really make sure people buy into your vision. The mission and they come to work it for this to support the vision mission. That's number one. Second, do they match the cultural attributes that you're looking for? You're trying to create some culture. Do the people that have most of those cultural attributes? And then third, do they have the skill set to feel and execute on the day-to-day job that you want them to focus on? Mm-hmm. I think if people can check those three bars, then you're in good shape. Got it. Anything, any parting words, any other advice for entrepreneurs in the New York tech ecosystem? Yeah, I think uh, maybe my advice is more like for people who are not entrepreneurial yet and are thinking of being entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's one of the most fulfilling things that you can ever do in your life. I think probably besides being married and having family. Sure. Mm-hmm. But from a career standpoint, if you have an idea and you think that you're solving a big problem and you're very passionate about it. Um, I don't think there's anything that comes nearly as close as being able to take an idea from a napkin and turning it into something where you see that, wow, there's 10 people not working here, there's 50 people working here, we have excellent customers, we have this entire ecosystem, you have a brand, I go to the event, and they're like, oh my God, you're the founder of this company. From the body, oh my god, what is it? I love it, you know, I love your brand. I love like that is the most gratifying thing you could ever do. Yeah. No, there's a caveat to that. It's not for everyone. Right. 
And a lot of people now are being attracted to entrepreneurship and starting a company, but it's extremely, extremely, extremely hard. Right. And you have to have that mental discipline and focus. Um, and you also have to have like the mental strength because there's a lot of scary moments. Especially in days, people are going to tell you it's crazy, it's never going to work. And here are 10 reasons why they are extremely rational why your idea is going to fail. Mm-hmm. And your job is to be calm and pause and say, I get it, I hear you. I'm going to completely ignore your advice because I know it's going to work for XYZ. Right? It takes a certain character, it takes a certain personality to do this. Not everybody's built that way. It's not for everyone. So everybody who's out there listening to the podcast and thinking, I want to go start a company. I think it's important to do a lot of soul searching. to take a really good look in the mirror and say, it's not for me. Or maybe yes, it is for me. Because the truth is, out of 300 million Americans and 150 million professionals that work, I would say less than 1% are cut to become an entrepreneur and build a company from scratch. That's great advice. Totally, totally agree. It's, uh, it's not easy, but it is very fulfilling. Yeah. Well, Alex, thanks so much for taking the time and sharing all your words of wisdom. Appreciate it. And uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.